This is Sporting Max with Max Becker on SEN. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Sporting Max brought to you by Bastion GRP. For all your specialist needs in recruiting, engineering, and defense, go to bastiongrp.com.au. Joining me on the show today is AFL psychologist Sam McLeod. Sam, it's an absolute privilege to have you on. How are you? Oh, well, thanks. Thanks, Max. I actually feel privileged to be interviewed by you because it's intriguing to me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. I've always been wanting to, you know, get into the minds of psychologists and the work behind the scenes they do. But I want to start off with yourself. What was growing yeah. up like as a kid for you? Did you always have that passion for sport? Yes. Oh, well, I was an elite basketball player, so I've been playing sports probably since I was about six. I started basketball Wow. and also did a lot of um, track and field and running and, mm-hmm. and still love running. So mm-hmm. that's something that I still do. But basketball sort of took me right up until I was basically doing my PhD. So I was yeah, yeah. Um, work, started to work with teams while I was still playing. Mm-hmm. And, and then I thought, mm, I, I'll probably have to choose here because <laughs> I was going to be somewhere else. Um, but, yeah, I think I think it was um, it kept me sane through all my study to keep playing Absolutely. at a high level. Yeah. What was that like to make the decision between basketball and doing a course? Yeah, it was it was actually hard, but I think I always knew when I when I um, they, there was a psych that came to my school at Bowen High School once when I was in about year nine, I think, and when she spoke, I knew it's what I wanted to do, mm-hmm. um, and I think I took it, I took them as far as I could together. So I feel like you know I played in the state teams, I played big champs, I played national league, I you know I made national squads and things, and and I feel like I was always going to be the psych post basketball. Yeah. So, so when it came to the crunch of who could I help the most for the longest, um, obviously me working with people was going to be a lifetime journey. So oh, I, I, I can't say that I've got the basketballer out of me, though. I still like to shoot hoots out in the backyard. Yeah. <laughs> and I keep saying to people I'm making a comeback. So Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So how did that basketball career, I guess, help you in advancing into psychology and, you know, dealing with athletes um, and things like that? Yeah, well, actually, it was there was this interesting point in my career where, because I was a point guard, I was a, mm-hmm. quite a tall point guard, but and I was often captains of, of teams or court captains. Yeah. Yeah. So it was really interesting because I was very team oriented, and and I think team sports suited me, even though yeah. I could run. I liked the team sports mainly because I realised when there was this moment where I thought, what do I like about basketball is exactly the same as what I like about psychology, mm-hmm. which is. I'd much prefer to try and get other people to do well and lift them and find their potential. So I loved making somebody else look good. I loved being the team player, you know, giving all the assists for someone else to score. I loved the, the drills and trying to get everybody motivated and, and doing it for the team. So so really it was the same kind of thing. And I think I, I still do that, I try and do that for people. But it definitely gave me like a little, it was like a job. Because being captain was like a job, and it, and and I practiced a lot of that well before I was a psych, a psych really. Um, it also taught me the demands of of elite sport, and for people who are multi potential, want to be, want a career, want a business, um, you know, they were studying, but but also wanted to achieve the highest level they could. I I, I get how hard it is to juggle all of that. So how did you get your first break? I guess as a psychologist, what was I guess your first job? Oh, my first job. 
Well, I came out, I came out of uni and went straight into working for myself, which is very unusual. People are too scared to do that. They're too scared to go out and be a, you know, run your own business because yeah. they think it won't be successful. So I had my own private practice from as soon as I could was allowed to work with people. And then um, I probably had a few mentors like my supervisor, who was actually a quite a famous sports psych um, at the time, took me everywhere, took me to all these teams and, and everything so I could just watch and learn. Um, and then probably uh, through my basketball, all the doctors that I got treatment from, the physios I got treatment from, as soon as I qualified, they started then giving me teams. And I think one of the first teams I worked for was was um, a Melbourne Uni rugby team. Wow. Which was pretty bizarre for a woman to just Yeah, a bit hectic, yeah. <laughs> and they were so rough and they hadn't won. They hadn't won in years. Like oh. they hadn't won a game. So it was a big challenge. But um, one of the doctors that, that I worked with at a sports medicine clinic, he used to play and, and so they knew him. Um, and that was actually so much fun because the guys – really embraced me because they were very desperate to win a game. <laughs> oh, yeah, and that, that was my first gig. And then from there, it sort of continued. So obviously working with individuals is probably a specialty, but what about working in a group and team environment, like you mentioned with Melbourne Uni there before, trying to not only get an individual out of a form slump, but the team as a whole? Yeah, it's. I think, I think sports psych in Australia is still a little bit behind in how a sports psych can actually go into a sports setting. That they see them as one-on-one, you know, you sit in the room and you do treatment or you work with the athletes. But actually we're trained to look at that organisational level, the sport as the client, um, to run a lot of the, the group work with the team but also the collaboration between the coaches mm-hmm. and, and, and the athletes and the team. So it, it is a lot, of, um, a lot of hats you can wear sometimes. But the best results come from when you're embedded in the sport, which is what I am in, in at AFL, embedded there, working within that setting rather than just going in, doing some teamwork every now and then and, you know, not having much yeah. to do with them. Yeah, go in before the Olympics and try and get them to win gold. You know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so how did you, I guess, progress over your time to get to the level where you were able to, and obviously you would have had connections and a variety of people involved in um, the Australian Opals organisation to be the psychologist there? Yeah, um, I think there's two things I say. My first ever client in private practice still refers to me 30 years later through all her her people. And and if it's like the six degrees of separation, if I find out where it came from, it came from that lady. I think if you do good work, the, the word spreads. So, and then if you've worked with colleagues in a sports medicine setting or in a sports psych kind of setting and they think that you did well, they will continue to to bring you in or recommend you um, for your whole career, really. So your network starts to get wider and wider depending on the sports that you're involved with. So obviously working with various different athletes in different styles of play like rugby, basketball, AFL, all that kind of thing. How do you go about adapting your style of therapy or psychology to suit that team or individual or you know sport 
Yeah, I think a lot of people think that a sports psych has to know all the rules of a sport and yeah. you know know the sport in detail. You 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 actually what we're we're trained to work broadly within sport and with athletes. So the athlete mind, the athlete personality, um, you know, a recreational athlete versus what an training illegal. goes into that athlete mind or personality. Yeah, lots lots of. Lots of aspects, like it could be motivation, it could be their the way they concentrate or attend, it could be their emotional um, control, their physiological arousal. So there's, um, you know, how they deal under pressure in a competition setting versus training, um, developing habits that will make them the best performers that they can be. Um, there's like a whole, like I guess it's it is it's a whole theory behind. Um, what makes an athlete tick and and also within their sport context you know so you know AFL in our country is a big sport right because it's but it's Australian yeah that's yeah. very different for when I work with um, even an amateur athlete but elite in an Olympic program who who's trying to win gold every four years yeah <laughs> you know that that so you would the intervention you would design would be very different but you don't actually, you learn the rules of the sport and the sport often through your colleagues or the athletes themselves. Yeah, absolutely. What about when you've got these athletes and things like that? Is it all solely focused on, I guess, the on-field work or I assume there'd be some off-field work there too? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's not all. I always say before, if you want to be a high performer, it's all the work you're doing off the field, off, mm -hmm. off outside the stadium that actually creates the success. So, you know, even with their concentration skills, there's no point trying to do it under pressure in a final. You actually have to practice that outside in, in that setting. And the other thing which I think has been seen separately has been well-being and, and sort of high performance. They seem separate areas, but we know that you have to be well, functioning well as a human being to actually get to the level that you're a high performer. So making sure that their well-being is taken care of, their mental health is taken care of, all of the nutrition habits, they have to practice what they're doing a lot outside. So we've spoken about differences. Now I want to get into, I guess, your personal approach when it comes to working with juniors and things like that at the AIS. Yeah. Well, I actually love I love working with young people, which is why I was fascinated with you. Always have, I think. I think through sports psych, you do draw a lot of young people, right, yeah. you know, yeah. versus me as a health psych because mm. they find it attractive to work with a sports psych. Um, so I like to get in early because kids respond really quickly. So what I find is if I could teach the strategies to kids, they might have it in six weeks. It might take six months to change an adult when they've got their, their ways, yeah. you know, yeah. and they, they're stuck in their ways and they don't want to get out of it. Kids are really responsive. So I, I deliver to the kids all the strategies I deliver to a professional athlete mm -hmm. because when I was a basketball player, we learned a lot of the skills like um, mental imagery. And you wanted you to know. learn those skills too, yeah. Yeah, you know, we use them. So you want to practice them early so they become automatic. So it's very sort of skills-based, strategy-based, building their self-esteem, Um understanding where where they want to go mm -hmm. what do they actually want to achieve do they want to be a professional athlete you know maybe they're playing multiple sports so really trying to help their career trajectory um where is it you want to go and then mapping it backwards and making sure that all the parents coaches everybody that's supporting them can do that 
in a way that's that helps that person achieve that. You were part of the program and campaign Tackle Your Feelings with the AFLW. Can you take me through that experience for you? Yeah, so the Tackle Your Feelings, they run um, workshops. But the, the first lot of the funding that came from the government was to run workshops to deliver to community sport, AFL community sport all over Australia. Yeah. Um, and they've done a fantastic job and basically it was coaches, administrators, anybody who was looking after the athletes, that's where the mental health and wellbeing program was delivered. I think they're going to move into delivering it now to players. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So it was a four-year project and they did an amazing job and I think everybody is now a bit more literate in mental health and how to deal with that um, within AFL at least, AFL community. Yeah, absolutely. What about the difference between... AFL and AFLW stats play. Obviously, you mentioned with the juniors, teaching everyone the same skills to be able to adapt to an elite sporting environment. What about working with women? Obviously, I guess you have a different approach, maybe a more sentimental approach, I guess. Well, in, at Richmond, we actually, it was funny because the, me, the female psych, is working with the men and they had a male psych working with the women. <laughs> and, that, <laughs> and that seemed to work quite well. Like, they, they really liked it. But I think that with the AFLW generally, most of those athletes haven't started off playing footy as kids like me at six, right? Yeah. They've played another sport, multiple sports, and then transitioned in as a general athlete. Mm-hmm. So I think, if you know, for me, one of my areas of specialty is injury stuff and I can see a lot of the injuries that are happening in AFLW is because they haven't had the conditioning that the guys have had, yet they're, they're really trying to to learn the skills and, and perform. So I think that's a big difference and I think they need a lot more support in that conditioning and injury rehab kind of space so that they that doesn't happen. And I think that's devastating for them because, you know, they could be out with a knee injury and that's it, you know, for the whole season. Mm, absolutely. You mentioned your specialty was um, injury and rehab and things like that. How does that fit in with, I guess, the psychology and mentality behind getting back on field? Yeah, well, there's two, two aspects. One is the risk of injury. So yep. what are the psychological factors that could contribute to the risk of injury? So... So you might look at, we call that like a biopsychosocial um, approach. So it's got the biology in it, you know, what, what's actually happening in the body. So all the strength and conditioning team, the physio, the doctor would be looking after that stuff. And then the psych would be looking at, you know, ha- has this person had sleep? How well are they? Are they struggling mental health wise? Mm-hmm. Are, they, are they really tired and scattered? And would they be a risk of injury? So you'll be looking at pairing all that information to lower the risk in the first place. Yeah. And then once they're injured, what we're looking at is how can we facilitate their, their psychological recovery? So a lot of athletes early on said that when the medicine improved on an ACL injury, they were getting back about seven, eight months wow. physically to, yeah. to footy and, and basketball, but they weren't psychologically ready. It actually took longer for them to be not scared of re-injuring it to get their confidence back. Um, so a psych helps with that adjustment and there's lots of dips in injury recovery for long-term inju- injuries. You know, people can really get quite depressed if they don't have the support around them. So how can you try and help with not only trying to get back on ground but trying to get over that big hurdle and fear? Because obviously... When something like that's happened to you, there's a fear of going back to that and it makes you want to push yourself further and further away and every time it gets even more scarier to go back to that thing. 
yeah, I mean, one of the big things we do know is exactly what you said. The more you avoid, the more scary it gets. So there's, there's you know, desensitisation processes, which is really exposing yourself gradually to the situations. So you wouldn't expect someone to be running full pelt and marking up in the air mm-hmm. if they'd had a major injury. You would have to set gradual targets for them to build up that confidence. Um, you can also use mental imagery a lot for injury rehab. You mm-hmm. see them visualise the things you want to do in your head over and over and over again with a good knee. And it feels like you've done it a hundred times before you've actually gone out on the field. So they call yep. that you do a lot of in vitro work in the office um, before you do in vivo work, which is out on the field or on the court. Yeah, absolutely. Can you take me through your role at the Richmond Footy Club and the impact on the group, both on and off the field? Um, so it's changed. This is my third season. So initially, it probably started off sort of in the well-being space. I feel like um, they hadn't really had a psych for a while so the guys really felt like they wanted someone to talk to and be there for them and and not just always focused on performance but actually them as a whole and their their life Um, and then um, then it sort of branched into um, working more multidisciplinary with with all the other health professionals there and the well-being team um, in and helping with the education what do they need to learn um and then now this season it's moving more into that sort of optimal performance space still with the the well-being and mental health slant. So that will probably be sometimes you're in the office doing one-on-ones, sometimes you're in meetings talking to people, sometimes you might actually be working on skills with the players and the coaches or running some team sessions. So it's got lots of <laughs> lots of roles. Yeah, absolutely. So what's how important is the role of, head protective gear in AFL these days, you know, due to the amounts of concussions we've seen. I mean, you take someone like Paddy McCartan, for example, who had probably seven or eight concussions in the space of, you know, two years in an AFL career that almost put it to bed and he's had a huge resurgence, which um, just thinking about it now, it puts a tear in your eye. Yeah. I, I think that we are, we just had some, they're doing a big um, research project on concussion in the AFL and it's certainly been a focus in other sports, rugby um, and other sports as well, where they're changing the rules so that people don't, you know, be at risk more. Um, the person, that, the researcher that came to the club the other day said that the research is actually showing that wearing protective headgear that they wear in AFL because it's softer hasn't really been shown to to change the incidence of concussion injuries because it's you know it's the brain basically hitting the skull Um, (laughs) what does that so if it it was like NFL with hard helmets and things like that um, maybe but I think what's more important is to lower the risk by looking at the rules and to understand some of the cognitive and mental health stuff that that happens post concussion is misunderstood um, and if someone is quite high functioning, then they might get missed as this is a, quite a bad concussive injury here. Now they're yeah. sort of average, but they were much higher than average before. So it's definitely a focus um, and it can ruin people's lives and families' lives if it's not monitored properly. Let's take Paddy McCartan, for example. How do you view his case? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't really want to f- comment most, much about specific cases because there's, there's there's probably ten athletes I could I could think about in, in multiple sports who've had yeah. multiple concussions from from teenage years, mm-hmm. right? So we know the brain is still developing up until the age of twenty one. Yeah, and 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 they have had injuries that they discount, but 
had problems with study, had problems with lots of stuff and never really noticed it until they got into professional sport or elite sport and then it started getting monitored and they got asked questions. So I think I think knowing about it even in amateur junior sport mm-hmm. is actually really important, not just when it gets to, you know, when you've got a whole team around you. So parents need to be aware of it to take their kids um, to get assessed properly so that, they don't put themselves back in training too early, which is, you know, in AFL they've got, you know, you sit out for 18 days. And just, yeah, yeah. so it, it's about actually monitoring when you're ready to return. Well, I'm not sure if you've seen this this season, but in the NBL for Melbourne United, Shea Ely's been out, you know, over probably three-quarters of the season with concussion. They've taken a really conservative um, approach to him coming back into the lineup, just a few games here and there. And I think that's a great example of um, how to go about things, especially after you've done multiple concussion injuries. Yeah, and probably, you know, had, has headaches, still got symptoms, vision, things like that that they know. We know what what changes when they're ready to go back. I think the hard thing in professional sport is it is their job, so it's often hard. The athlete won't necessarily declare a lot of the symptoms. You can, you can assess it through cognitive testing, Right, so they can't lie about that, um, but but often they won't. They don't want to miss their sport, yeah. and they don't want to not get selected. So it, it's a it's a, that psychosocial issue about taking care of themselves as well that's preventing a lot of the management of it. Obviously, the most important things: player safety and confidentiality um, in professional sporting organisations. Are there conversations, obviously, with players' permission and athletes' permission? I guess that happen with the coaches too yeah so it takes a while like I think when I'm supervising sites that go into club settings or team settings I'm always saying to them you'll find it a strange world because you're used to sitting in your office and keeping everything confidential like Mm -hmm. right down to the appointment time you can't tell anybody you know that it's even booked and then you go out there and everybody is used to hearing about other stuff and they think that you'll tell them (laughs) and you can't. (laughs) So you actually have to educate all of the key stakeholders about what information you can say, which is general, nothing to do with a specific person. Over time, if you work long enough with with the athletes and they gain trust, you can ask for consent if you think it's necessary for their for their either their care or their performance. So I often do that if I think I want to talk to the doctor, the physio, um, the coach, and if, with consent, um, then it's okay. Can you tell me about your business, the SAM Centre? Can you tell me all about that and what that's like? Okay. So I worked a lot in private practices. Obviously, I started early in my business, but I wanted to wait until I'd learned from everybody else about all the mistakes in business before I got my own. So I opened... The reason I did, because when I was working at Alfington Sports Med, I couldn't take on the referrals myself. So I thought I need to open a practice where there's like-minded people, where I can trust who I'm giving the referrals to. So that's why. And and the slogan is seek, arrive, maximise. So that's like, you know, seek out for Sam, you know, seek the treatment, arrive at a place that you feel like you're doing better, but then we want you to lift. We want you to aim for optimal functioning and, and performance, not just I'm okay. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. What types of different therapies um, are introduced there? 
So I, I basically tried to recruit one of me for all the things I specialise in. Yeah. So we've got a couple of um, health psychs, which is for medical kind of psychology, yeah. medical conditions, yeah. and then sport and exercise psychs or performance psychs, um, and then people who do general mental health, and then people who do child and adolescent psychology because we draw that from all of those areas in there. There are a couple that do some family therapy and couple therapy, but but it's mainly those four areas that we really look after. What's the most common treatment or therapy um, in the AFL at the moment? Well, the common, uh, I, I, more than a treatment, I'd probably say sports psychs um, are being trained in what they call acceptance and commitment therapy. Yeah. Um, it, that, it, it actually was introduced for mental health, but it marries quite nicely to the high performer about basically don't don't fight things, don't try and change the thoughts, but try and accept what's happening and embrace it all because professional athletes have a lot of discomfort, right? They have to push through discomfort a yeah. lot and they have to be flexible in their mind. They have to be really adaptable. So the model works quite well, but there's probably, I mean, you know, if I wrote what therapies I use, it's like a paragraph you know, a little bit of everything to get the right mix for each person, really, rather than that one therapy fits all. Does your style of psychology change and differ between each person to adjust them? Yeah. Yeah, that's why it would be very individual, right? So you might have, obviously, you want to use evidence-based therapies, you know, you're coming from the evidence base, but sometimes that doesn't work. You know, some a lot of people will say cognitive behavioural therapy doesn't fit for some reason. Somebody with a bad concussive injury, you wouldn't be doing a lot of cognitive work, mm. right? You'd be working on other things. Um, so then you sort of steal, you borrow from these other ones and until you find out what's effective for this person. So it can be quite eclectic um, to suit this person's needs. Or you could start there and then six months down the track, you're doing something new, you're doing something mm -hmm. different. Mm. Yeah, so you're constantly changing. So how do you try and manage um, various different roles, obviously the SAM Centre, um, you know, sometimes the Opals, the, the AFL and things like that um, all together. And I think you're starting sports medicine too at the moment. So it's a very hectic well, schedule. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I've always done like I have what I call my five fingers in the glove. If I put these five fingers in, I'm happy. Mm -hmm. So I've always done lecturing. So I actually lecture in sports medicine. So that's where that comes from. But I have worked in sports medicine clinics. I've always done consultancy work, whether it's for an organisation or a team or a business. So I love that. Get out of the office and do that yep. kind of stuff. Yep. Um, I've always done private practice mm -hmm. and I've always done um, mental health. I really like working in the area of mental health. But I love also the gifted psychology and, and almost the elite of the elite um, trying to help them. So there, I, I I almost know now, it's like a jigsaw puzzle, my diary, trying to put it together. Yeah. Because <laughs> now I've just started the VIS, so I had to find time for that as well for the swimming program. And, um, yeah, I think when I get that balance right, I'm the happiest and I feel like I'm, I'm thriving. So obviously most commonly working with ball sports, you mentioned working at the VIS and swimming. How does that approach change too? Because obviously it's a completely different ballpark. Yeah, I actually love because I've worked quite a bit with track and field athletes, like individual sports, mm -hmm. even the shooting sports, you know, yep. which is a lot of concentration. So I love the Olympic sports and, and I love swimming. I think swimming, I always say to the parents, swimming and gymnastics are two of the hardest sports because the parents have to get up at some ridiculous hour in the morning to go to training for three hours. Yeah. <laughs> then they go to school. Then they do another three-hour, two-hour, three-hour walk yeah, in the yeah. afternoon. 
So usually by, you know, sort of your 20s, you're over that sport and you go and pick something else. So I love mm-hmm. the mental challenge of it and it is a lot of work. And to be like milliseconds to, to, to beat somebody, you have to be able to have all those one percenters. Um, so I really love that even the swimmer's mind, I love how they approach their whole life to get all of that done. Um, you know, their weight training, their eating right, their everything that they're doing to just get a little bit faster, a little bit stronger. Um, so, yeah, I love I've worked with swimming a lot. How do you find consistency in these swimmers' routines? Because I've spoken with Kate Campbell and over a period of time, you know, sometimes, you know, she's got a very consistent weekly and daily routine that she'll do. She might have a week A and a week B, um, yeah. and then sometimes her schedule will differ and things like that. So how do you try and find that right medium inconsistency of their routine? Yeah. For their programs? For their programs, yeah. Yeah. I think in Australia it is actually hard because, you know, some states like good old Victoria can be pouring rain and it, it, it becomes quite a, a task to actually keep sticking to your routine. So I know with some of the, the swimmers that I had, you know, we try and get them up north for training camps and getting what they need for training and follow the sun, basically follow the sun to get what you need rather than thinking you have to stick to the same every week. Because if you do that, that's not flexibility, right? They're going to get distressed if they can't yeah. control yeah. those things in the state yeah. that they're in. So is it giving so, the athletes control over their own schedule? Trying to give them a little bit more control and and not freaking out when you don't, when you can't do things yeah. Yeah. like this. What What could you do instead? You know, what's another thing that you could do? Because when they go to another country or, or, or things like that, things go wrong, right? So you have to prepare them for that adversity. Um, you know, swimming up and down in a pool doesn't change much, but everything around it does. Yeah. <laughs> Sam, thanks so much for joining us today. No problem, Max. Thank you very much. <laughs> thanks so much, Sam. Stay tuned, everyone, for some more Sporting Max. We'll see you soon. This is Sporting Max with Max Becker on SEM.